change lives. God is, is moving among us. Jesus did die, he did rise, and he ab- that absolutely changes everything for us. And what better way to celebrate that than to see some baptisms on Easter Sunday. Praise God. God is working through the young and old in this place. <clears throat> Not that I was just calling Arlene old. I'm just saying, she's long gone. She's long, it's all, it's, no. You should, if you hear the things she says to me after she preaches, you know that's cool between us. She's got a few up her sleeve all the time. Praise God that he is absolutely changing lives. Hey, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here at Central. Welcome here. Um, if you don't mind doing us a favor, if there's a little bit of spare room, do you mind just getting close to strangers? We consider church family here. So if you're at the end of an aisle and there's room in your aisle, maybe just snug in a little bit in case we need to fit a few more in. I want to welcome you. If it's your first time to church ever, a special welcome to you. It's a little terrifying walking, donning the doors of a church. So thank you for coming. If you're brand new to Central, first time at Central, welcome. Really glad you're here. And if it's just been a long time since you've been to church, welcome. Central family, happy Easter as well. Love you, and it's great to gather with you and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together. Maybe many of you have heard of a man named Lee Strobel. He's an author. He's written a lot of books. Most of them start with the case for something. He's made, he's made the case for Christ, the case for the resurrection, and the case for about nine other things. And they're all great. Um, but I, I read just recently, he, he, he told his story recently leading up to this Easter, and I wanted to share it with you. It's a fascinating story. Because Lee Strobel was an atheist Chicago newspaper editor. And it was the worst news I could get as an atheist, he said. My agnostic wife had decided to become a Christian. (laughs) Two words shot through my mind. The first was an expletive. The second was divorce. I thought she was going to turn into a self-righteous holy roller. But over the following months, I was intrigued by the positive changes in her character and values. Finally, I decided to take my journalism and legal training. I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune and systematically investigate whether there was any credibility to Christianity. Maybe, I figured, I could extricate her from this cult. I quickly determined that the alleged resurrection of Jesus was the key. Anyone can claim to be divine, but if Jesus backed up his claim by returning from the dead, then that was awfully good evidence. He was telling the truth. For nearly two years, I explored the minutia of the historical data on whether Easter was a myth or a reality. I didn't merely accept the New Testament at face value. I was determined only to consider the facts that were well supported historically. As my investigation unfolded, my atheism began to buckle. Was Jesus really executed? The evidence is so strong that even atheist historian Gerd Ludemann said his death by crucifixion is indisputable. This is where historical facts point. Even atheist historian Gerd Ludemann said it's indisputable that Jesus was a real person who really died. Is the the resurrection a legend? Not a chance. 
Anne Sherwin White of Oxford said it took more than two generations of time in the ancient world for legend to develop and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. Yet we have a report of the resurrection that Jesus appeared to named individuals and groups of eyewitnesses, which has been dated within months of Jesus' death. Was Jesus' tomb empty? Scholar William Lane Craig points out that its location was known to Christians and non-Christians alike. So if it hadn't been empty, it would have been highly unlikely for a movement founded on the resurrection to have exploded into existence in the same city where Jesus had been publicly executed just a few weeks before. Besides, even Jesus' opponents implicitly admitted the tomb was vacant by claiming that his body had been stolen. But nobody had a motive for taking the body especially the disciples. And we have seen ancient sources that report they were willing to endure lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation, as a result of their proclamation Jesus had risen. It's unlikely that they would have done that if they knew they were propagating a lie. Did anyone see Jesus alive again? We have nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament that confirm the apostles' conviction that they encountered the resurrected Christ. Repeatedly, these sources stood strong when I tried to discredit them. Could these encounters have been hallucinations? No way, experts told me. Hallucinations occur in in, in individuals' brains like dreams, yet Jesus appeared to groups of people on three different occasions, including 500 at once. Was this some other sort of vision, perhaps prompted by the apostles' grief over their leader's execution? This wouldn't explain the dramatic conversion of Saul and opponents of Christianity or James, the once skeptical half-brother of Jesus. Neither was primed for a vision, yet each saw the risen Jesus and later died as a leader of the church. Besides, if these were visions, the body would still have been in the tomb. Was the resurrection simply the recasting of ancient mythology, akin to the fanciful tales of Osiris or Mithras. If you want to see a historian laugh out loud, bring up that kind of pop culture nonsense. One by one, my objections evaporated, he said. I read books by skeptics, but their counter-arguments crumbled under the weight of historical data. No wonder atheists so often come up short in scholarly debates over the resurrection. In the end, after I had thoroughly investigated the matter, I reached an unexpected conclusion. It would actually take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a follower of Jesus. And that's why I'm now celebrating my 34th Easter as a Christian. Not because of wishful thinking, the fear of death, or the need for a psychological crutch, but because of the facts, he wrote just a couple of weeks ago. Now, I said all that, and yet I want want to shift gears here a little bit. This morning... I want to to dwell on the effects of the death and resurrection of Jesus, not evidence for. So I'm not going to try and prove crucifixion to you. I'm not going to try and prove resurrection of Jesus to you this morning. But I want to preach to you this morning the effects of his death and his resurrection and what that means for you, every one of you. So I don't want to ask the question this morning, did it happen But what difference does it make? What did the cross and resurrection actually accomplish for us? Now, I would say a lot. I mean, I'm not in a vest and a tie this morning because I like to. (laughs) 
I'm doing it because we're celebrating this morning that Jesus died and that Jesus rose and I almost wore a suit. All right? <laughs> because we believe it makes all the difference in the world. We believe that it actually changes everything and it absolutely can transform your life. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to nearly the end of it. There's this little letter called 1 Peter. Right after it comes another letter. It's called 2 Peter. All right. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at the last two verses of that chapter, verses 24 and 25. It'll also be on the screen. You can also um, get to ushers, and ushers have Bibles that they can get in your hands. If you don't own one, it's yours. You're welcome to take it with you. If you do, just, you can just leave it behind when you're done with it. But it'll also be on the screen. Let me read to you the last two verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself, Peter writes of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your spotless life. You lived a life free of sin. You lived a perfect life. You lived a life like no other in human history has ever lived. God, you sent your son and he lived that way. But it didn't stop there. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing a cross and paying the penalty for our sins. But thank you that it doesn't stop there. Thank you that as he was placed in a tomb, that tomb could not hold him because death could not hold him. And God, you raised your son, Jesus, from the grave where he defeated sin, conquered death. And we give you praise because that has massive implication for us today. God, I pray that you would speak to us wherever we are at, and and we're at many different places in this room, and I recognize that this morning. So I can't say everything, and I can't speak to everyone perfectly, but Lord, as each of us are in this present condition, would you speak your truth into each one of our lives in a way that grows us, deepens our faith, sees you more clearly. Lord, Lord, would you speak through your word and by your spirit to each of us on this Resurrection Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at two things. By trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, it accomplishes some things we see in the text. And because he rose again, it makes a huge difference, and we want to see what that is. So let's start by trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It says in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. Die to sin in two ways. I want to talk about two ways that that Jesus made it so we could die to sin that he could lift our burden of guilt and shame. Some of you are carrying great burdens this morning. There is guilt, heavy on your heart, heavy on your shoulders, heavy on your lives, guilt and shame. So he came and he died so that he could lift our burden of guilt and shame and secondly, liberate us from the enslaving power of sin. I'm going to explain what those are. So let's look at the first one, that he could lift our burden of guilt and shame. If I, want to, if, I, if I want to talk about sin just in a real simple definition, yes, it's missing the mark. Yes, it's, it's doing wrong that we know is wrong. Yes. But sin is also craving something more than God. See, God made all things. He made you. God created all, is over all. And when we do not worship him rightly as Lord over all, we sin because we crave something more than God. Sin is essentially living for something more than God. 
right? And that, that's, that's another term for idolatry. Like, what's that thing you're, you're living for that gives you your most pleasure, most joy, most satisfaction? What's that greatest striving you have, you're fixated on, your world is wrapped around? What is that? If it's not Jesus, it's actually a substitute, a, a cheap substitute. And everything short of worshiping Jesus as the greatest treasure in our lives is sin, and it leads us down a trail of more and more sin. But we see in this verse that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. What this means is that Jesus actually bore our sins on the cross. Something actually took place there. He bore our sins on the cross. He did that, which means Jesus' death is the means by which sins are forgiven. He died so our sin could actually be dealt with. Every wrongdoing in your life dealt with on the cross, truly. So you don't have to carry guilt. You don't have to carry shame. So say with me this word, expiation. It's a great theological term, expiation. Use that one at dinner at Easter later this weekend, whenever that is, to say, you know, the expiation of Jesus is just profound. Anyways, just use it. Feel free. Here's what expiation means. It has to do with taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty. But do you catch it? Taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty. So when Jesus bore your sin on the cross, paid the penalty for your sin and actually removes the guilt. We need to hear that part. Some of us believe that Jesus died on the cross, but we just we can't believe that, that he can actually remove our guilt, that we don't need to walk around in guilt and shame. Are you carrying those burdens today? Jesus died so you wouldn't have to. He died so you wouldn't have to. As the great hymn goes, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. He did it. He's done it. He, he, he bore the burden of all of your sin. He was our substitute. He bore our sin on that tree so you wouldn't have to. So you wouldn't have to walk around guilty. You wouldn't have to walk around shamefully. There's only one kind of guilt that the follower of Jesus needs to feel. One kind of guilt. I like to call it good guilt. There's one kind of guilt and it's good guilt. You know what it is? Conviction. So when you live for Jesus, the cross is there. Jesus is there. Pay the penalty for your sin. So you do something really stupid. Is it just me or has anybody done something real stupid? Done something real stupid. I, I see you, brother. I see that hand. All right. Right. <laughs> Just the pastors. All right, two of the pastors. All right, we're good. Okay. Oh, we need grace. Right? So what he has accomplished there is that there's this good guilt. And so in Jesus, conviction comes along. I've, I've done wrong, and you're gonna, you should carry that for a little bit. That's conviction. Oh, I have done wrong. But, but you don't need to carry it around. You come to Jesus. You repent. Right? You confess your sins, and then you need not carry it anymore. There's only one kind of guilt we need to carry around as Christians. Good guilt, that momentary conviction. But we come to the cross knowing that he's paid the penalty for it. We repent of it and we are cleansed. So you walk away burden lifted. You walk away light. You walk away free. That is good, good news. Look, some of you haven't been to church for a long time or ever. And a lot of you, like me, need to respond to the gospel this morning by repenting. You've been carrying a burden and you know what? It can be lifted. You need not carry it out of this building with you this morning. You can leave it behind. Gaze at the cross. Repent of your sin. He died there so you wouldn't carry it any longer. 
Jesus died on a cross so that your guilt and shame could be crucified. Secondly, we're liberated from the enslaving power of sin. This is connected, but it's different. And this is really important. When it comes to behavior of all the major religions, generally, actually instructing the same sorts of things, this standard, how you are to live. The world religions are in some ways saying the same things. And here's what I mean by that in terms of how we are to behave. We're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to cheat. We're not supposed to steal. We're not supposed to murder. It's not just Christianity. Right? We're to be generous, and we're to love others like we love ourselves. So that's not, that, Christianity doesn't have a, a corner on that market. That's, that's behavior expected, really, of all the major religions. And yet the world is not how it ought to be because we're not doing it. So there's this expectation in the world. There's this expectation put on the religions of the world. You're to live this particular way, and yet it doesn't happen. What is it about our hearts and human condition that we know exactly what we should do, the consequences of not doing it, but we do it over and over and over again? How do you explain that? Right? One-year-olds already know how to steal and hit. At least my one-year-olds did. They become good stealers and hitters like right off the bat. How many husbands see a young woman walk by and follow her and your wife is right here. Doesn't Matt, you don't need to be a Christian to know that that's just bad news for you. Like, that never goes well. But what is it in the, in the sinful condition of humanity that does really dumb stuff like that? How do you explain that? And here's where I would say only Christianity has the kind of answer that satisfies. Is there a certain level of behavior we ought to have? Yes. But only Christianity has the answer. But look, there's this predicament, and and, and the Bible's explanation of the, the, the sinful human heart is that we are enslaved to sin. That sin destroys freedom as in, and is an enslaving power. That's what the Bible teaches. So the Apostle Paul comes along and writes in Romans chapter 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is the human condition. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me and dwells in every human being. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So if I were to give us a little exercise to do, starting now for the next 24 hours, and that exercise were for all of us to leave and love others, the golden rule, love others as you love yourself. We have this 24-hour exercise. I want you to go out and love others as you love yourself for 24 hours. So you have this mandate, right, like you've never had before. I want to love others how I, how I love myself. That means, that means with all the effort, with all the happiness, with all the care that you would provide for yourself, do it for others. If we were to do this exercise for 24 hours, I think you would find something that you're a more selfish person than you ever realized. But here's the thing. I'm trying to send you out to do a really great exercise. Love others like you love yourself. And off you go. But you know what you find in the midst of that exercise? Wow, I'm selfish. I don't want to give this thing and revel in their joy of it. I want it for myself and revel in the joy of it for myself. 
right? Like, that's what we do. Like, and we realize by trying to do good, we realize more than we ever could have otherwise, wow, what a wretched sinner I am. And that's the tension of the world religions. That's the tension of faith. Is you're, you, you, you see this standard of life that you feel like you're supposed to live, but no ability to achieve it. So the Bible's telling you all these instructions. Islam's telling you all of these instructions. Buddhism's giving you this lifestyle and this way that you're supposed to live, and on and on and on we go, and yet you can't meet it. You can't match it. You don't have the ability because you have this depraved human heart. And even as you try to do good, you realize you're far worse than you ever imagined if you were just living this sort of free, agnostic life where you're like, Right? How does it work that way? We actually find out when we try to do exercises like that that we are powerless to do good. Paul summarized at the end of the chapter, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer, Jesus. If that's the answer, that Jesus dying on the cross actually liberates us from the enslaving power of sin. Jesus lived a spotless life, died for you. So you who are a slave to sin, even if you want to do good, you can't fully do it. Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to free you. I'm going to liberate you. You're going to go from slave to sin to slave of righteousness. And that's where we get to this next point. By trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we can live new and transformed lives. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The purpose of Jesus' death on the cross was not only to take our guilt and free us from the power of sin, which are all great, but also to empower us to live a new kind of life. We can live new and transformed lives by dying to sin and being reborn, being made new. See, everyone who believes in Jesus and gives their life to Jesus has died, been buried, and raised together with him. We go from being slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness, actually giving, actually given the power by the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus and live for his glory. He frees us from this enslaving power of sin and, separates, uh, and sets us free to live a new kind of life. Romans 8.11 puts it this way, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is an incredible verse. This is what it says. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. So Jesus died and he rose. He ascended to be with the Father, seated at his right hand by accomplishing that work, by dying and rising again and going to be with the Father in heaven. He gifts us the Holy Spirit, and his spirit lives inside every believer. Now this is incredible news. So that that power, that spirit that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you as a follower of Jesus. That's power. That's new life. With the ability to live new lives and put sin to death. Jesus' death, resurrection, and glorification enable him to give us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit inside of us is better than Jesus beside us. That's somebody else's book title, but it, it just works, right? The Holy Spirit inside us is better than Jesus beside us because that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you to combat sin, to live for his glory, to live new, reborn lives. This is good news for a sinner like me. See, when times are hard, when sin is crouching at the door, when temptation has come or worse, you're giving into temptation, there is a very tangible 
reality that the power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside every believer and helps us overcome sin and temptation. Praise God. In Jesus, we're born again and can live, transform lives. And that is the answer that nothing else on the planet can do. Are we to live a particular way? Are our lives supposed to look a particular way? Yes, but not by grinning and bearing it, not by grinding our teeth, not by pulling up our bootstraps and just trying harder. We realize, left to our own devices, we actually find we're worse than we ever imagined. But when we rely on Jesus, the Holy Spirit that's been gifted to us, his working in us, when temptation comes, we can fight it with the power that overcame sin and death and temptation. You can truly fight it. It's amazing. This is good, good news. Jesus bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And there's this little line, by his wounds you have been healed. I love that line. Just slip right in there. By his wounds, you have been healed. Past tense. You give your life to Jesus, you've been healed. We're not talking about cancer. We're not talking about arthritis. We're not talking about bad backs. Jesus certainly heals. Here on earth or the full comprehensive healing of the body at the final resurrection. But what, G, what Peter is talking about here about Jesus is even greater. It's healing from the punishment due to each one of us for sin. We've been healed from it. We've been healed from that punishment that we deserve for our sin. By his wounds, you have been healed. When he was lashed, when he was flogged, when he was nailed to a cross, and when he bore it for us, he was healing our hearts. He was making us new. He was freeing us from the enslaving power of sin and making us slaves of righteousness. I mean, we just saw this in baptism. We watched four baptisms. We do a baptism by immersion because it's a picture that you die to sin. That under the water, it's death to sin going on down there. Right? Your old life. Right? That, 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 that heart condition that's prone to wander. That, that, that reality of depravity in our hearts that we cannot do right on our own. It's killed. And it's good that I'm just doing an example here and not doing the real deal because this person would be long gone by now. But that's all going on down here. That's happening. It's a picture of the cross. And then you pull them out, give them a good breath. And as you pull them out, it's this picture of resurrection life, dead to sin, alive together with Christ. We have been saved. It's this picture of Friday and Sunday, death to the old, death to sin, laying it down and reborn to new life in Jesus Christ. That's baptism. It's this picture of dying to sin and living to righteousness. It's what this verse is telling us. And we had the privilege of watching baptisms, the picture of it, and what has happened in their lives on display for us to see. The verse begins then with this basis upon which believers are forgiven, Christ's atoning death. And then Peter then emphasizes the purpose of his death so that believers will live a new kind of life. He pays your sin. And then the purpose of his death is so you can live a new life. So let's look quickly at the fact that Jesus has rose again. Let's look at verse 25. For you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is a good verse. The meaning is this. We're all going astray from the way of salvation. Everybody in all of humanity is a wandering, straying lamb. 
We're all going astray from the way of salvation and proceeding in the way of ruin until Jesus brings us back from our straying. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he raises us from our spiritual death into spiritual life. Romans 4.25 tells us that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, means he died for our sin, and raised for our justification. Raised so that we could be found not guilty before a holy God in Jesus. So, two quick exclamations here. Two quick truths I want you to take with you. Because Jesus rose again, first, it's cause for celebration. We see that Jesus, uh, that we're like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. There's a lot of, uh, if you read the Bible, often you'll see there's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of sheep imagery, a lot of shepherd imagery. And, and we are the sheep, and Jesus is the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd. And he tells this story in Luke 15, and I want us to hear it because what verse 25 is saying about us straying like sheep, but that we've been returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, I want us to see what this means for us. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story, he tells a parable. And I think he saves this parable for a really great time because verse 1 of Luke 15 says that when he saw that the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near, the social outcasts, the outsiders those who weren't good enough, those who weren't all put together, when Jesus saw the tax collectors and the sinners drawing near, he told this parable. He said, there's a shepherd. He's got a hundred sheep. At some point in time, he realizes that one has slipped away. There's there's a missing sheep. There's one lamb has has strayed, has wandered. And, and, And he tells the story that the shepherd will leave the 99 and seek out the one. And this shepherd will go, go to find that one lost sheep that's wandering. And he will, he will pursue that lamb and he will get that lamb. And when he finds that lamb, he will take it and he'll put it on his shoulders, he says in the parable. And then that shepherd will take that lamb and go back to his friends and go back to his neighbors. Jesus is celebrating all the way back that he's found this lamb. And when he gets to his friends and neighbors, he says, celebrate with me, celebrate with me, because I had this sheep that was lost, but now is found. Join me in celebrating this lost lamb that's now found. And then he unpacks it. He kind of steps away from the parable. And Jesus says, so it is in heaven. When one tax collector, when one sinner, when one outsider who's been wandering is found, Jesus literally grasps up that lamb, puts it on his shoulders, and beckons to all of heaven, rejoice with me because there was a lost lamb and this lamb is found. Rejoice with me, praise with me, celebrate with me. There was a lost lamb that's found. And Jesus is telling all the host of heaven, Join in the celebration for this lamb was lost but found. So what's so staggering here is that we sit here and many of you profess faith in Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means that there was a day when you gave your life to Jesus. There was a time when you were truly his, that Jesus had just strewn you over his shoulder and beckoned heaven to join in celebrating with him that his lost lamb, you, were found. There was a day in heaven when Jesus grasped me up on his shoulders and put me on his strong shoulders, the ones that bore a cross. Because he rose again, he's he's the type of shepherd that can actually go out and pursue the lost and he can put us on his shoulders and celebration happened in heaven. There's another part to this. Perhaps you've never given your life over to Jesus, said Jesus have it. 
You are the Savior. You are Lord over all things. You are the Savior of the world. Maybe you've never confessed that. I just want you to know, if you were to give your life to Jesus here this morning, Luke 15 would be going on. Jesus would be just grasping you close. That's his response to you. Grasp you close, put you on his shoulders, telling everybody around, celebrate this lost sheep has been found. Now, I I know there's actually still a few of you that will say, yeah, that's great for all these polished Christians over here. That's great for the, the people who look like pretty classy, that look nice, that put together, right? I watch their life for a little bit. They look good. They look innocent. They look nice. They look, right? But not me. You don't know me. No, like I'm, I'm much worse. You don't know my past. You don't know my present. This is, this is 1 Peter chapter 2. It's written by Peter. Probably the most significant disciple. When Jesus is about to die, when Jesus is being um, handed over, Peter denied Jesus three times. Denied that he even knew Jesus. Denied him walked from him, disappeared at Jesus, what perceived his greatest need. Jesus, Peter just walked away from him. But as Jesus rose again, Jesus approached Peter, not only forgave him, he transformed his life and used him mightily. So look, you think you're, you're not, you're, you're, you think you're too messed up? You think you're too big a failure, too lost for Jesus to redeem? The Luke 15 parable was said of the tax collectors and sinners, right? It was... It's almost like the celebration's the greatest when you really know how messed up you are. I am so lost. And you'd give your life to Jesus. He, Jesus revels it. That's what it's all about. Lastly, because Jesus rose again, we can trust him completely. It says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. You've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Jesus is our shepherd. John 10, 11 says, I'm the good shepherd. This is Jesus speaking. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who's tending to the sheep, when the wolf comes, they're like, I'm out. Right? This is going to get dangerous for me. But the good shepherd, it's, there, it's his sheep, loves the sheep, will protect the sheep. So much that Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And Jesus has proved that he is trustworthy and that you can trust him completely. He laid down his life for you. He proved how good he is, that he's the good shepherd of your soul. The other title of overseer, uh, the other title Peter uses here is overseer. The Greek word is episkopos. You want to say episkopos? Nice work. Use it at dinner. Use it at dinner. Um, Really, the, the, the root of that word is skopos. Uh, where we get the word for scope, microscope, telescope. Scopes enhance our ability to see. And the prefix on the word, it's going to get exciting eventually when we get through the nerdy parts. The prefix of the word epi intensifies the force of the root. So he has the ability to see and see well, but it's this intensified seeing, which means that Jesus is the overseer. He's the super looker. He's the super looker. He, He can see your life, your life, so well. He sees it better than you even see yourself. So Jesus is the shepherd that tends you, loves you, cares for you, watches over you, laid his life down for you, proved his love, but he also sees your life like nobody can. And he loves you. He's your overseer. And he can see things like nobody else can. See, we don't always know what we really need. We don't know what pains and what joys and what circumstances are necessary for our sanctification, for our growth in Christ. But Jesus does. He's the overseer. He's the super looker. He sees it all. 
Jesus, our good shepherd and divine overseer, loves us. Because he died, because he rose, you can trust him with your life completely. You can hand your life over to Jesus and know that it is safer than it could ever be. In the hands of a shepherd who will leave you by, lead you by still waters and green pastures. In Christ we have nothing to fear, not sin, not death, not Satan, not anything. Jesus died for you and Jesus rose again so he can lift our guilt, liberate us from the enslaving power of sin and give new life. I encourage you to respond in two ways to that amazing truth this morning. Trust that. Trust him. And celebrate. Because Jesus beckons us to celebrate every life that's handed over to him. We've got a lot of lives that have been given to Jesus this morning. We have great cause for celebration. He died and rose so that we could live and celebrate these truths. I'm going to invite the band to come on forward. I'm also going to invite, we have a prayer team uh, every Sunday morning. And they're going to kind of get into different spots in the room. Up in the front, back of the room, up in the balcony. We just really believe in prayer. We love prayer. And any chance we have to pray with each other is just really wonderful for us. So they're wearing lanyards. If you want to go and pray with them, they'd love to do that with you. If you'd like to give your life to Jesus, um, they would love to pray that with you. Just help you hand your life over to him this morning. Place it in his safe grasp. If you don't know if you've ever given your life to Jesus, I, I invite you to respond. If you haven't ever truly surrendered your life to him, I invite you to surrender your life to Jesus this morning. And look, if you haven't been walking with Jesus in a way where you've really trusted him with everything, right? you doubted his goodness, doubted his mercy, doubted his grace. If you haven't been walking closely with the Lord this morning, I just encourage you, trust him. If you want to pray that with somebody, they'd love to pray that with you. If you want to just pray that where you are, just pray that. Lord, you are the great shepherd and overseer of my soul. I love you. Turn to him. If your life is polished, turn to him. If your life is a train wreck, <laughs> turn to him. Jesus died to save you. Jesus rose to help you conquer the sins in your life. Not just a better, not just you just doing better, not just helping you along, but changing your life completely, reorienting your world. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose victorious. Why don't we stand together? I'm just going to pray a blessing over us. Hebrews 13, 20 says this, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's celebrate all that Jesus has done this Easter Sunday together, hey? Let's respond with celebration.